to see you, especially uh, at this event. Uh, you should know that you are the reason for this, for the ascent. Uh, the leadership and volunteers of this church are, are the heartbeat. You're looking around at the core of this church, what makes it go. Uh, so many of you serve in multiple areas. It takes a lot of people to pull off what God has given us to do at Hillside. And because you serve in so many areas, it's too much to ask you to be at every leadership training thing that you're involved in. I mean, you have told us you're not coming to everything that we do. And uh, you've made that clear. And so, now let me tell you, that is a very real dilemma for the, for the staff and for the leaders of ministries, as you, as you might imagine. Uh, because every staff person wants their ministry to thrive. They want their leaders and volunteers to be trained and informed and envisioned, unified, capable of doing with excellence the, perf- the role that they're given to do. And so today is a very, very valiant effort to equip and align all of us at the front end of a ministry year to get as much in as we can and to recruit and invite others to be a part of this team and not only to make Hillside all that it can be with the resources God's given it, but also to share the load. Uh, So... Now, while each ministry has different roles and responsibilities, we all have the very same mission. And so I want to start today with our mission. I think Josh can put that up for me if if I can't get it up. There you go. There you go. Let's go back. Josh, you just do it, okay? (laughs) Uh, And it's, we're trying to help people discover who Jesus really is. And live with, like, and for him now and forever. Uh, It's why we do everything. It's why we're doing this event. It's why you'll go to every breakout and learn what you'll learn there. Now, in January, we did a two-part series on the two major elements of this mission statement. Uh, You introduce people to Jesus, and then you teach them to follow him. That's the two parts. But today I want to do something a little bit different. Um, and focus on the very last word. It's not in there. Uh, I mean, it's, it's in there on purpose. You know, to face forever is everything. To, uh, to realize what's at stake in forever. Right after I gave my last talk here on uh, Sunday in June, a fellow walked up to me and said, hey, and his family's been coming to Hillside for a while, but, uh, and, and they haven't really gotten as connected as they really want to be. And he said, hey, before you, you know, take off, would you, would you meet with me? So we did. We had breakfast. Talked about a lot of things. And uh, found out he's, he likes to read, but that he had never read any C.S. Lewis. And so I said, well, this breakfast is over. 
and you're buying. That's right. So, uh, so I just gave him a challenge. I said, look, if you're going to start with C.S. Lewis, just, just read it. You can download an eight-page PDF of The Weight of Glory. Read it. I told him I read it once a year. So I asked him to do that and, uh, and hope that he would, you know, interact with me about it. But because I told him that, I went back and I read it, and I ended up reading it three times, very slow, slow more slowly than I normally do. And um, th- there's just nothing better when it comes to the ultimate mission that we have. And in a multitude of ways, it changed my summer. For Lewis, glory is the gravity of God. It's a weight. It's the gravity of eternity, the heavy reality that we must stand before him one day and face him. And either be received or rejected. To be considered a delight to him or a terror. And he writes in there. It's what we're all hoping for. It's what we all ultimately want. It's the inconsolable secret that humans walk around with. And for C.S. Lewis, it's startling that people go through life without knowing that's what they really want and settling for a bunch of cheap, empty substitutes. And then to consider that at the end, it's too late. But he says to those of us who have figured out, who have a hope of glory, who look at forever differently, a wonderful future with God, a forever with God, Of course, to rejoice in that reality, but not to be relieved of the weight of knowing God in that future moment, rather to feel an even greater weight. And he says it like this, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's future should be laid upon my back daily, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in society of, a, of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or a horror and a corruption such as you now might meet only in a nightmare. And all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of those two destinations. So the weight for C.S. Lewis becomes a burden at the end, in the last couple of paragraphs. It's a burden borne by those who can't imagine forever, who think about eternity, that moment in the future that is everything, that moment that dictates forever. And he says every day... We walk on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. That we will or will not survive an examination by God. So what does it look like to bear that weight? What does it look like to bear that weight in the lives that we live? Uh, How do you do it? Well, there are a number of things I'd love to say about that. I have a really short amount of time to walk you through a psalm that I've meditated on this summer. And I think it really encapsulates what Lewis is trying to say. 
and what our mission is. It sounds like this, and I'm just going to read it to you. Just, just, just listen. Oh, it's 13 verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Well, uh, this sounds like many songs. Covenant community being called to worship God to consider the, the wonders of future hope. Uh, so you would read it like, well, thank God I figured that out. Thank God I have done that. Thank God I have a, a, you know, a, a, a beautiful forever ahead of me. Well, uh, that's really not what's happening in the psalm. It's a very, very happy psalm, I will say that. The surprise of the psalm is that it's not said to Israel not spoken to anyone in Israel, the covenant community. They're not even mentioned in here, which is strange for the psalm to be called to worship, and you're not the covenant community. Um, especially juxtaposed to Psalm 95, which has just called Israel to the same call of 96. And together, it creates a little bit of suspense, like, then what's the new song? Who's supposed to be singing it? You know, like, what's going on here? Well, it turns out, as we're going to see, it's a missional song. It wasn't for Israel. It was a call to the nations, to the whole earth, to finally see the weight of God's glory, abandon their idols, and rejoice in his appearance. In fact, in verse 7, I read to you, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. That's the same phrase, literally, in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of God's mission when he called his people. I'm going to save the nations through you. And so in this psalm, Israel's picturing a like, fulfillment, the mission fulfilled, what God promised in Genesis 12, ultimately done in the forever, way out into the future. Now, this would have been pretty radical for them to sing a song like that in that day. It would be just as radical for us, but in some different ways. When you consider Africa and China and Saudi Arabia and, and Russia and Iraq all worshiping God, 
Well, for Israel, it's just as remarkable to consider that. When all the Psalms leading up to Psalm 96, you hear things like, uh, these enemies, these nations are enemies of God. They mock God. They, uh, they leave bodies in the streets. They're constantly plotting against Israel. They destroy the temple. All these things are going on. And here it is. They are singing a song that doesn't even include them. It's a new song. And it starts and ends the same way C.S. Lewis does when it talks about the weight of glory. Because it starts with God's glory. They recognize God's glory. They imagine the nations worshiping God. And when you recognize God's glory, you're transformed. You sing, you bow, you offer up, you rejoice. You do all the things that are in the song. Because the word for glory is weighty. Unparalleled importance. God. Unparalleled importance. Uh, to, to try to figure out how to, use, how to understand weight, it's just the sum of all reality. If you, could, if you could put all reality into one thing and weigh it, it would be overwhelming and that would be God. That's the best way to try to... No beginning, no ending, dependent on nothing. He creates, he does marvelous deeds in this text. And all the nations would see, he's the creator. And he does marvelous deeds. And all marvelous deeds in the Psalms are acts of salvation that God does. And they will finally see it. And in comparison, when they finally see the weight of who God is, in comparison, everything else becomes weightless. That's the idea of verse 5 in this psalm where he says, uh, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know that the word for gods in Hebrew is Elohim. You've heard it a million times. In this text, he says, the thing you think are Elohim, the gods that you think are Elohim, because that's the word, can be for gods, little g or big g. The thing you think are Elohim are really, and it's a little word play, Elohim. Your Elohim are Elohim. They're nothing. They're worthless. They're not even realities. They're non-existent. In comparison to God, all other possible worship objects are weightless. Uh, they're non-entities is the idea. Idols are just crushed by him. And so you see in C.S. Lewis's thinking, when a person comes to Christ, the first thing that happens is the weight of God crushes all the substitute idols and false gods. It just crushes them. And as you live your Christian life, they just continue to get crushed by his weight. And you see that happening when you consider forever. Um, when I was in Romania, uh, every morning we had breakfast at this little hotel we were staying at, and we ate dinner there every night. We would sort of get on the same page in the morning with the Hope Partners, and then at nights we would sort of get together and, you know, um, just discuss the day, you know. Well, the very first day we were there, we met a group of people who served the U.S. military because there's a U.S. military base in Constanza. These were very, really, really smart group of guys who uh, 
spoke multiple languages and they were there in secret mission. And they were always a little secret and you couldn't, you knew they were doing secret stuff because we got to know them and they couldn't tell us stuff. And sometimes we'd ask them questions and they'd just smile. And sometimes they could give us some information. And while we're working with the Ukrainians for our first time there, it was really good to have some input from them. And occasionally they would let their uh, young guys who could speak Ukrainian, these guys had lived all over the country, they're U.S. citizens who live all over the country, uh, speak different languages and serve the U.S. And of course they were on a special mission there. And it was good to know they were there. Well, the leader of that group was this big guy, about 6'6", Bald, had a, I don't know what this would mean to you, but just a Russian face, even though he was a U.S. Just a Russian face, a big guy. And in Romania, there's not a lot of big people. And so when you walk into this breakfast, you just notice this guy, and he led this little group. You could tell he had military experience. We got to know him. Uh, pretty soon, we were sitting with each other every morning and every night for seven days. They would download stuff for us. They would listen to our stories. They wanted to know why we were there. He eventually started letting his team go with us on little day trips to speak, you know, to help us with the language because they could speak Ukrainian. It was such a blessing. So we really got close. They heard Kirk and I, both of our testimonies. They loved what we were about, even though he really didn't want anything to do with God himself. And he was for a big guy who looked like he could crush you, had military experience, now really, really smart. You're just like, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, uh, as we were going. But he was really affable and really helpful. And on the very last day, on the very last day we were there, that morning, Kirk and I walk in, and this big man, 6'6", six, six, maybe 260, walks up to us, and he is bawling. And my first thought was, there's a nuclear, it it happened. It happened. That was my first thought. He was saying goodbye to us. Bye, Kirk. Bye, Pete. That was the first thought. This is what he says. He said, last night I was in here at dinner. You guys left. I stayed in here a little bit longer, and he's always on a computer. And he said, I saw a girl that looked just like a fiance I used to have. A year ago, we broke up on this very day, and my heart is broken. And he is bawling about it. And I'm relieved. (laughs) And this big boy is crying over this, and he tells us the story and why they couldn't be together. And while even though they both want to be, even to this day, why it's probably not possible because of the life he lives and the life she lives. And we hugged him, you know, and talked about heartbreak and just had a moment there and then went on with our days. And when we got back together, everybody was there that night and the whole restaurant was filled with people. And we had these two tables. Kirk and I were sitting with one, one of the team members of his. He was sitting across the table with a few other of his team members. And, uh, and I'm just looking over at him to see how he's doing. And I finally ask, and he says, it's been a hard day. And um, I don't know what prompted the conversation to get to a point where I got up and got in between the tables and I looked at him and I said, I've been praying for you all day. And both tables just sort of stopped. And I said, uh, I've been thinking about all day what I would say to you. This was our last night together. And I'm probably not going to ever see you again. Because he was going on to Poland. And he said, and I said to him, I said, uh, I said, here's what I've been thinking. I've been thinking, 
you know, I called him by name and I said, you, I, I know your heartbreak. I said a few things about heartbreak, that pain versus the pain of the Ukrainians that they're experiencing in, in there and said something there. And then I just looked at him and said, you have to find something in this life you can't lose. And right now you don't have it. And I'm telling you that in my life, Jesus Christ is that. And he would be there for you. And I mean, both tables, man, are just glued. They, I can see half of it is I cannot believe this guy is saying this to him right now. And the other guy, well, he gets up. He, he hesitates a second, gets up. And, I don't, and he walks over to me in the middle of this busy, noisy restaurant, and he just wraps his arms around me and weeps again. And I could, I could hear what C.S. Lewis is saying. It is not easy for people to realize that the idols that they worship are not enough. And we as a people get to show people it's not enough. You're going to lose it all. That's what the psalmist has in mind, that there will be a day when the nations who are worshiping anything and everything possible that will give them hope, there's a day coming when they will see God's weight in a way that it will crush the idols in their lives and hearts. But then the psalm comes all the way down to the end, and it pictures the other part that Lewis says. When you get to the end and you're facing God, and you either become an everlasting splendor or an immortal horror, and that's the judgment at the end of the text. Because uh, that's how it ends. To look into the future. To look into forever. It's Israel singing about that moment when the judgment comes. In fact, he says, for he comes two times. In, in Hebrew, when the last line of a, a verse and the first line of the next line are the same, it's just for emphasis. For he comes. For he comes. And it's almost like a uh, the psalmist is seeing a future theophany. It's, it's almost as if the psalmist says, can I, can I wake you up to the reality? Oh, he's here. In fact, picture him here, standing right here, right now, in his presence there and you before him. That's the idea. Imagine his presence. And here it is pictured as a delightful moment. And he celebrates these everlasting splendors. You would be an everlasting splendor before God when he comes. If the weight of his glory you've recognized and you bow before him and serve him. That's the end. That's salvation. In fact, he says in verse 9, worship him to the nations. Worship him in the splendor of holiness. And splendor is clothing. It pictures us it's actually priestly attire. You know, the priest had to wear certain clothes to come into the presence of God and be accepted. And here's what the psalmist is basically saying. Imagine the weight of God's glory comes into your life, crushes your idols, and God dresses you appropriately so that you can stand before his presence and be accepted in Christ's righteousness and not your own. It's that kind of beauty. And C.S. Lewis, I mean, this psalm just seems to pull that out. Now, let me say this to you. Uh, when I read the Psalms, and I read them a lot this summer, uh, Israel is here s singing this new song, right? Uh, 
It's a song that they're kind of singing about and hoping for, but it wasn't for them. The nations are not even within earshot of this. Only they can hear themselves sing this. Even though it's the hope for the whole world, only they can hear it. Now, this is what I was going to say about the Psalms. Um, I try to imagine how in the world would they have taken some of the songs, Psalms that we read and how would they have included them in a worship set? You know, I spend my week trying to figure out how's a worship service going to go. I mean, how would they have stuck some of these Psalms in there? Uh, well, let me say something to you. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David has become king. Uh, He has to defeat Philistines, defeat Jerusalem. The Philistines have stolen the ark. And as one of the first things of his regime, he's got to get that ark back and sort of set Jerusalem back up as the religious center of the people. And so it's a big deal. They have gotten the ark. They've defeated the Philistines. They're back together. And David immediately goes, and you can read this, in like 14, 15, and 16, he starts setting up the worship service that's going to happen because he can't wait to get that ark in the tent in the center of the city so that everybody can gather around it because that's the essence of everything we are and do. And so he does. In fact, and it's, in, it's in this moment when Yuza uh, Uzzah touches the ark and dies and sets back the service three months. It's like, oh, we got to wait three months. We had a guy die. We can't just go celebrating. And so we got to wait. So three months happens. David is on pins and needles. He's spending that whole three months planning the service, naming the musicians who will sing and the songs they'll sing. And sets this thing up. This is in the beginning of the profession, remember? It's so exciting for the people. He dances, remember, in that sort of skimpy outfit and his wife, Michael, looks down, thinks he's an exhibitionist. Remember, that's that whole thing. It's like so incredible moment. Then finally comes the moment where they are worshiping and they sing a a couple of verses of Psalm 105 and a couple of verses of Psalm 106. 105 at the beginning and a couple. And right in the middle of this set, the whole song of all of Psalm 96 is sung right there in 1 Chronicles 16. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute, that's not even said to Israel. If there was ever a moment in Israel's history when they would have gathered around and rejoiced about their future, their forever, it would have been that moment right there. And David makes them sing a song about the nations of the world who haven't even gotten it yet. It's this song right here. It's like... (laughs) one of their greatest moments, and it wasn't even about them. That's what the new song is. That's the new song, the new tune that's always in our heads, even though day after day we do the same old kinds of stuff in serving God. There's a song that's always singing in our head. And you know what the song really means when you're singing it in Psalm 96 or 1 Chronicles 16 or even today? It means it always remembers... (laughs) That what we do together is bigger than us. You sing that song so that you know, even though the nations cannot hear them singing it, it's a reminder to us that God is about those nations and it's bigger than what we're doing. 
that his heart and his redemption extend to the ends of the earth. And that God will ultimately one day have nations bowing under his weight and being received by him into forever. Now, my final thought for you. Walter Bruggeman is uh, an Old Testament commentator that I've gotten exposed to over the last, just the last couple of years. I love him. He's written so many different things, and one of them is a little uh, book called The Message of the Psalms, and it doesn't cover every psalm, just highlights some. And I was fortunate that he said something about Psalm 96 because it's such a missional psalm. And this is what he writes. The liturgical use of the psalm is more than hope. And here's what we mean by liturgical use. That you would include it in a worship service is liturgical. It's part of the service. That you would include it in there. It's more than just hope, even though it's definitely about hope, because God's going to reach a people. Here's what he writes. It's making the future momentarily present now through word, gesture, and practice. The liturgy celebrates as if it's already true. The fact that we include it in our everyday practice, everything that we normally do, our liturgical efforts, the things that we all do to make Hillside work, our liturgical efforts, they are a reminder that one day nations will serve God the same way. All the nations that even can't see what we're doing or hear what we're saying. That means all of our interactions, our service, our words, everything we do corporately. When we greet each other, direct each other, escort each other, teach each other, serve each other, lead, disciple, sing, every, everything we're doing today. Everything we're going to learn about doing today. All of it. It turns up the volume on the new song. It blares the music of the future. The music of forever. And it invites everyone to dance. Listen, Israel failed. They sang that song, but they failed as a people to reach the nations. And so God brought the church in. And we are in a far better position to sing that song and accomplish that task than Israel ever was. For two reasons, and I'll close. First, because one of the marvelous acts of salvation that they sang about in Psalm 96 that had not happened yet was Jesus has already died on a cross. We already have the cross. God has set aside that weighty glory so that we at the end could be glorious. Everlasting splendors. We know that. We sing Psalm 96 with a greater enthusiasm than Israel ever could. And finally, while none of the surrounding nations of Israel would have ever dropped in on one of their worship services, you do know that, right? We have them coming here every week. The church has people coming in here every week who've never heard that song, don't know that hope, don't know the emptiness of the idols that they worship. They show up every week. So what we're doing today is much bigger than us. Our God is way too big. His love is way too great to be contained anywhere. And we bear the weight of his global redemptive plan.
and we imagine its fulfillment because we can imagine forever. All right, bow your heads, would you? Father, keep forever on our hearts, especially now as we just go through this day and then as we serve you week in and week out. Keep forever on our hearts. It's so much bigger than us. And your heart for the world gives us joy, a new song to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.